We're picking up where we were in the Centered Teaching Series as we look at, we're into our last two weeks. So this is the second last installment, and uh, we thought it'd be maybe a little bit mean to make David preach on his ordination weekend on a, you know, coming off of an early flight like that. So David will bring the final message next Sunday uh, as we close this Centered Series. Um, So today we're looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. For those of you, if you're not familiar what we're talking about with the Centered Series, we have been doing a bit of a deep dive over about 18 months in parts, chipping our way through a a deeper look at Jesus' teaching in in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest, most extended teaching we have from Jesus all in one place. Some talk about it as being like the core of the gospel. This is the real crux and heart of what Jesus uh, is on about, what his kingdom means, and what it means for followers of Jesus, his disciples, to live into the way of Jesus, to embody the life of Jesus in the world in which we live. So we thought it's pretty pretty timely for us to attend to that as we emerge from this COVID pandemic and all of the uncertainty, all of the question marks, all of the challenges that that's thrown at us over the years. Why don't we recenter ourselves, recenter ourselves on the person and the teaching and the way of Jesus. And so I invite us, as, we, as you open up, um, to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to read verses 13 through 23. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, right? Lots of contrast in there, right? Narrowed choices. And maybe that's exactly where we feel the rub. Because Jesus says, There's two gates, there's two ways, there's two destinations, there's two trees, there's two kinds of fruit, there's two different crowds. If you read down through the passage, essentially that's what he's saying. And that rubs our modern sensitivities pretty wrong, doesn't it? I mean, if you walked into our favorite gelato store in town, Rollick and Gelato, if you walked into Rollick and Gelato and they only had a menu with two choices... How would you be feeling? If it was vanilla and chocolate, that's all you get. Those are your choices. Right? 
Let's see, all in favor of vanilla? No, we, we won't do that. Right, I mean, uh, like, like this, this just doesn't seem to play with us very well in our modern sensitivities, does it? We want choices. We don't want just, we don't want just chocolate or vanilla. We want chocolate with raspberries and pecans and, you know, whatever else kind of, like, you want, like, like let's just get a few mix-ins added in there, right? Like, let's make this thing, like, real good. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, and you've got to have at least... 13 options on the menu for it to be any good. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's actually what's going to bring the people in because we want a variety of choices because we're all so unique and special. We're all a snowflake, right? <laughs> and so we all love the different choices. We all want different, you know, like no one of us is the same. No one of us wants the same things. And so when we read words from Jesus where he says, there's two ways, friends, there's two gates, that lead to two destinations. We go, surely that's a bit of hyperbole. Surely he's exaggerating things to make a point. And maybe, maybe there is a little bit of rhetorical stuff going on here. But the truth is, we, I think, actually, we, we ought to sit with these contrasts. And we ought to wrestle with them on Jesus' terms. Not on our own predispositions and our own preferences. So we need to kind of listen to the word anew and afresh a little bit this morning as we come to Jesus' teaching, rather than importing a bunch of our own preferences and opinions. Is this this all right? Are are you tracking what I'm saying here? Uh, um, So Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate... For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate. I don't know why the NIV uses the word small there. It's actually the exact same word. Why don't they just use the word narrow? It'd be more helpful, I think. Narrow is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Narrow gate, narrow road, few people leads to a destination that brings life. Broad gate. (laughs) Wide gate, broad road, many people follow it, ends up in a destination that brings destruction. Jesus lays out two options. And some people go, well, when Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate for, many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. And, 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 and immediately, I don't know about you, but immediately when I read that text, my mind goes to, well, the narrow gate and the narrow road must be really hard then, right? Must be really difficult. Like if you're going to go the narrow road and the narrow gate, that means you're signing up to a life of hardship and suffering and persecution and that, you know what I mean? But Jesus doesn't say that, does he? So it's actually like, a, that's, that's one of my own misconceptions when I come to the text, that I need to go, oh, lift that off. That's not actually what Jesus is saying, not necessarily, right? It's not a guarantee that it's going to be, but actually, you know, and then you go, well, wide is the gate and broad is the, well, that sounds easier, doesn't it? But no, it leads to destruction. Maybe the best way to think about this is like two funnels, if you think about it, right? Wide is the gate, And broad is the road that leads to, I think what Jesus would say is, the more you follow down that wide and broad road, you'll find life starts closing in on you. And it inevitably leads to a place where life is gone. 
it leads to a place of destruction and it leads to a place of death. Whereas the alternative, Jesus says, is enter through the narrow way, the narrow gate. And as you follow that pathway down, the funnel opens up and life opens up to you more. It's an invitation to flourishing. Jesus doesn't say in here, it's going to be hard necessarily. It might be, but it's going to lead to life and flourishing and the blessing of God. And, and it, that's, that's the promise. That's what he says. That's the destination, right? If you enter through the narrow way, life will increasingly open up to you. You'll become more fully who you were created and designed to be. And Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't assign and say which way, you know, he says, no, he urges with those very first words, enter through the narrow way. You can almost hear him pleading with people, right? Like, come on, there's an option here. Choose the best one. Clearly vanilla. Verse 15, he says, and this is, uh, this, is a, this is a sobering text, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious. Ferocious wolves. Watch out for false prophets. False prophets. I mean, this, this, this verse right here kind of uh, like, like reveals two really obvious assumptions I think that Jesus is, is making and making clear to everyone. A, there is such a thing as false prophets. They existed when Jesus delivered this teaching, and they exist today. So as one who stands before you as a pastor who teaches and preaches, this is a sobering text. Because if you are going to faithfully follow Jesus, then you ought to be weighing everything I say, everything I teach, all the teaching in the life of our church ought to be weighed against that which Jesus has said that it not just be some good ideas or some nice opinions, but actually you ought to weigh and test and approve and make sure. Like that's, that's actually what Jesus, Jesus is encouraging everyone to do that. And so this is a sobering text for, for teachers and preachers, you know, like the good reverend over here and myself and, and others among you. This is, this is a sobering text for us to really look to and attend to and pay attention to. And it shows up actually all the way throughout the Scriptures. Later in the New Testament, we see the, see the Apostle Paul speaks to the, particularly the, the deceptive nature. You see, Jesus says, false prophets, they often sound quite nice. They, they appear harmless. They appear innocent. They show up like in sheep's clothing, Right? But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. They are dangerous and they are deceptive. That's the nature of false teaching. It is dangerous and it is deceptive. And so you see in, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, and this won't be on the screen, so if you want to look at it, you'll have to flip over to it, but I'll read it for you. Um, in Acts chapter 20, Paul writes... I know that after I leave you, this is, this is Paul writing to the, the leaders of the church in Ephesus, after he, and he goes, I know that after I leave you, get this, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Verse 31, Paul says, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. 
friends, be on your guard. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. False prophets, false teachers are around. And they may be more prevalent because of the technological age in which we live these days. Or anyone and everyone can claim authority in, and posting teachings on social media and all these different places and start their own blogs and put out their own content. And you know what I mean? The false teaching is everywhere. And Jesus would say, be on your guard, friends. Followers of Jesus, be on your guard. This shows up all the way back in the Old Testament too. It's not just a kind of a new thing that Jesus is talking about. This has been going on all the way through. If you read back Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in in chapter 23, verses 16 and 17 says, Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. You hear the dangerous deception playing out? It's not surprising that Jesus would use such strong language to talk about them like ferocious wolves, right? No harm will come to you. Oh, that sounds lovely, innocent, like sheep's clothing, right? But actually, it's going to be your undoing. Earlier in Jeremiah chapter 8, this will be the last one, Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 11, um, the prophet says says this, he says, um, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. You see it? False hope, false assurances, false truth. Peace, peace, they say, when there's actually no peace. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a real severe wound. You know what I mean? It's like, that's just not going to cut it. It is not good enough. And so what we see, Jesus is assuming that there are false prophets around. He gives this really strong warning, but it also upholds that there is a standard of truth, right? There is truth that can be counted on and relied on. That's the other assumption, I think, underneath Jesus' warning, is that there is a standard for truth. There is an objective truth, and that's kind of what sits behind Jesus giving these two options, the two ways, the two gates, the two roads, right? All the way through this. And this is really scary to talk about, but we have to be honest. We have to teach the text. As a preacher and teacher of God's Word, I have to be, I have to be honest to this. And you ought to be discerning and wise as you come to church, whether it's this church or any other church or any other sermon you might listen to online, we ought to be people who are increasingly attuned to the truth as revealed in the written Word of God, in the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Himself, right? We ought to be attuned to these things showing up in and around us all the time. And this is one of the reasons why I'm incredibly grateful for the gift of accountability, If there are things that you would question, you ought to be able to come and speak to me or David or whoever whoever the preacher might be. You you should. You should raise those things, right? This is an incredible gift of accountability. I remember Tim Keller, really famous uh, preacher and author, written some incredible books. He said that over the years as a pastor leading a church in New York City, there were a number of different occasions where people started questioning things about his teaching and theology. And so he just said, okay, great. And so their denomination coordinated an investigation where they basically, they coordinated some 
theological, you know, biblical theological scholars to go and interview and meet with Tim Keller and examine him and examine his teaching, examine his life and all his understanding. And he welcomed it. He says, this is the gift of accountability. And he came back and they said, no, no, he's good. He's not teaching anything that's heretical. He's not teaching anything that's false. You know, so it, it all worked really well. And in fact, that's actually what underlines some of David's ordination journey last night. And mine, 10 years ago, was when I was ordained. Same deal. Is that actually we're part of a denomination who takes seriously this issue. So, David, you, you may or may not know this, but over the last few months or even longer, David's had certain educational requirements he needed to meet in terms of study and all this kind of stuff. But then he also had to fill out a fairly lengthy doctrinal statement or confession of faith or doctrinal questionnaire. There was a how many questions on that thing? Lots. And uh, fill out lengthy responses to all these things and then sat an interview with our ministerial uh, preparation committee who, who interviewed him and questioned him and, and walked through his doctrinal statements and positions and, and checked it all out. You know what I mean? This is, this is what sits underneath a journey towards ordination. And so I'm really grateful that we're part of a denomination who takes these things seriously so that we can stand before you in good conscience and good faith and say, we, we, we want to embrace accountability. We want to be those who recognize false teaching for what it is and who you know, want to be able to be honorable in that. Why? Well, Jesus unpacks it. He says, by their fruit you will recognize them. You see, he says that phrase right in verse 16 of chapter 7, and then he repeats the exact same thing at the end of that section in verse 20, the end of verse 20, by their fruit you will recognize them. Now here, Jesus, I think, is talking about, you know, these false prophets and the fruit that you will recognize them. You know, then he goes on to talk about, you know, do you, a good tree only bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. You can't get good fruit from a bad tree and vice versa, you know, like that. It gives that whole analogy, right? Again, playing off the contrast and all that kind of stuff. But I think what Jesus is getting at here is less about like flat-out blatant heresy, you know, flat-out blatant heretical teaching. I think what Jesus is talking about is actually more about the fruit that results from a way of life. It's actually more of an issue, perhaps, of disobedience to the truth of God's Word. Because that's where teaching gets really tricky in a cultural moment where the standard of truth is consistently being undermined and chipped away. It takes great courage to stand up for truth and to speak orthodoxy, to speak Jesus' words, to stay true to Christ. It does. It takes courageous, it, it takes courage. And that's why I think there's, a, there's an issue of obedience and disobedience here for those and that's what you could test in terms of when you look for false prophets, look at the lives that they lead. Because it's not just about the actual teaching content, that's part of it, for sure. You want to be on the radar for, does this square with the entire biblical witness? Does this square with what God's people have typically believed throughout all time? You know, does this square, you know, you want to do those kind of tests for heresy. But you also want to test based on the kind of life that results from following such teaching, the way of life. Uh, is that person 
honorable in, in their dealings with other people? Is that person uh, you know, godly in, in the way they're raising their family? Is that person honorable in the way they use their money? Is that person, you know, like do they live an honorable life that reflects the person and character of Jesus Christ? That's maybe the bigger question. What is the character? What is the conduct? All that kind of stuff. And then the influence of their lives. What is the effect of their teaching? Is Christ being reflected increasingly in those who are near to them and close to them? What is the effect? You know what I mean? Like these would be the things that I think you should, should run the test on and run the meter on a little bit. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. And then we get down to verse 21. And this is a tricky a tricky text, isn't it? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's an important word in there. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doer. That's tricky, right? Two crowds of people. Not everyone enters the kingdom of heaven. Even those who do things in Jesus' name. That's a scary thought, right? If we take Jesus at his, at his words, it's a scary thought. How do we square with that? I think the key is back to this issue of an obedient life and practicing the way of Jesus increasingly. I think the key actually hinges between one who does the will of my Father, you see in verse 21, versus those who are evildoers. You see the contrast that he sets up in the end of verse 23, the one who does the will of my Father, evildoers. One does evil, one does the will of my Father. What does it mean to do the will of the Father then? Because these people, that sounds like driving out demons and healing people and doing all that in Jesus' name. That kind of sounds like the will of the Father, doesn't it? Yes, kind of. But if you separate the doing in the name of the Father from the, you see this phrase in, the, in verse 23, the I never knew you. If you separate the doing things in Jesus' name from the knowing and being known by Jesus, you run into trouble, friends. It becomes tokenistic. And so this is, this is a deep challenge to each and every one of us that we need to wrestle with, isn't it? Are you deeply known by Jesus? And how would you measure that? You know, if you're questioning that in your own mind and in your own heart and spirit even now, how would you, how would you measure that? I think one of the best ways to, to measure it is, are you comfortable just being with Him? Looking for nothing more. Not doing things to earn His approval. That sounds like healing people, driving out people in Jesus' name, you know, driving out, doing things in Jesus' name, Right? Just being with Him. Knowing Him for who He is and being known fully by Him. Where we hold nothing back. 
It's actually the only way to experience full and true love. You know that? You can't be fully loved without being fully known. That's true in human relationships. It's also true in God. And we know, we, you know, we can say in our minds here, oh yeah, well, God knows everything, so He fully knows me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, in a personal way, do you personally know Jesus? And does He know you? If you were to stand in front of Him right now, would He, would he say, oh, yes. I love that time we got to spend together this morning. I love that time that we got to spend together last night when you were just telling me about this and you were worried about that. And, and I, I just got to say, oh, you know, don't worry. Don't be anxious. It's okay. Don't be afraid. I'm here with you. I see. I know. That's, I think that's the key. I really think that's the key to this, this passage and that difference between one who does the will of God, one who does evil. One who knows and does the will of God is anchored first in a deep and abiding. It's Jesus, Jesus teaching in John chapter 15, remaining in Him, remaining in the vine, right? That we would bear much fruit. That's another text where Jesus uses images of good and bad fruit and trees and vine and you know garden imagery, right? I mean, and so friends, I think, When we look at this text, we see the truth is throughout the scriptures, people have, they they know this is true. They know this is true. And while we struggle to square, wait, just two choices? That seems a bit exclusive. That seems a bit hard, right? While we struggle to square that, you know, I think the invite, like, like we, can, we can go back and forth on, well, what does this actually mean about, you know, eternal damnation? And what does this actually mean about condemning? And all, what does this actually mean about all that kind of stuff? And we could talk on and on and on and on about that stuff. And that, there's some good things to, to discuss about that. But I think we can easily go get lost in the weeds talking about those things and actually miss the real heart and purpose of Jesus' teaching here. Jesus' teaching, I think, is reflected in his urging right in the very beginning in verse 13 where he says, enter through the narrow gate. This is where life is found. I want you to know life. I want you to go the narrow road because it's gonna open up increasingly to more and more life. And friends, I gotta tell you, this has been true of my experience following Jesus. The more I open up, you know, I follow to, true to Jesus and I stay true to his way of life and I stay true to obeying the things, like even when it hurts, even when it's painful and he's pressing on things inside of me that are just ugly and I don't like and he's bringing those things, like this was half the journey of sabbatical for me, right? These ugly things that rose to the surface that were part of my inner world and I go, oh, Lord, help me. I need your help. And he did. He met me there. He brought healing. He brought freedom. And life increasingly opened up to me. I'm still, I'm not perfect. I'm still on the journey. There's still lots that's wrong with me, you know. But as I pursue this narrow way of following Jesus, yes, it's not a guarantee to like the fast train to success or anything like that. that, He's not saying that. But he is saying, if you want to know life, do you want to know life to the fullest? And this is, this, this, is the, this is what's true of the Scriptures. You read through the New Testament, the Apostle Paul increasingly would choose the narrow way, right? He would increasingly choose, even when facing incredible opposition from people all around him, he would say, no, 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 here's the truth, and I'm sticking to it, and I'm not going to pay attention to those false teachers and those false prophets, and be, beware of them. Like, I'm staying true to Jesus, 
and I'm following Jesus. And life opens up so that he can say, even though I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been tortured, I've lost clothes, I have nothing, I've got everything, I am content. I'm at peace. That sounds like the language of one who is fully known by Jesus, right? And over and over and over, if you, I love reading Christian biographies. I don't know if you've read many Christian biographies, but if you read through church history over and over and over again, throughout the history and the tradition of our faith, faithful followers, men and women, faithful followers of Jesus, down through the centuries, this has been their experience too. In spite of opposition, in spite of temptation and deception and false teaching, and in spite of all of these things you know, floating around, Yes, we're in a complete, you know, I think a uniquely complex and challenging time right now. But actually, there's been things that have consistently challenged and contested for the narrow way throughout all of human history. And so we can't sit here with some kind of chronological or historical arrogance and think that we've got it, you know, like we've got it all figured out and better than people in the past. We just can't do that. And be honest, I think we, when we look back and we see people who consistently and faithfully chose the narrow way and then testify to experiences of life opened up to me more fully. I know Jesus more fully as I get older. I, I am known more fully by Him. So we no longer need to live in fear. I love that we sang that earlier. You know, I'm a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Imagine living like that. Imagine if that was actually true of our lives. That we could read a text like this and say, Oh, thank the Lord. I don't have to be afraid of that. And then it would equally, I think, move us to say, Oh, I so wish more people could experience that freedom and that hope and that life. Because Jesus says, there's not a limited invitation, you know, it's not limited numbers, you know, so RSVP quickly because we're, you know, limited, uh, you know, there's no limit on this when he says enter through the narrow gate. Anyone and everyone can choose that. But we need to choose it. And we need to choose it consistently, again and again and again, each day, each and every day. And so as we close this morning, I want to invite the team to come and... Um, I'm just conscious of a couple of people in, in, in my mind and heart as we, as we close the service who I, I think maybe um, God might be speaking to this morning. And the first is those who, um, you know, maybe you've been following Jesus for some time and yet you've not lived life fully surrendered to Him. You've not actually fully said, okay, I'm going to choose the narrow way. You've said, oh, I'm going to go the broad way and, you know, add a little Jesus here and there. I'm open to Jesus. I'm open to God. And yeah, there's some good things and I'll engage here, but I'm not fully committing to the narrow way. If you don't fully commit to the narrow way, then truth is, I think you're actually on the broad way. And it's possible, like we saw Jesus say, that you could get down through your life where you go, oh, I did all these things in your name, Jesus. I did all these things in your name, but you haven't cultivated a life of living in and with Christ. And so you are not fully known to Him in that way. That's the difference. That's the distinction. 
And so I think this morning there's an opportunity for those of you who would say, you know what, that's been true of me. I've not lived fully surrendered. Again and again and again, surrendered. That, not my will, yours be done. Not my will, yours be done. Okay, Lord, I surrender. Okay, Lord, narrow road again. Oh, this feels hard. I don't really like it, but I know it's right. I know it's from you. So I'm going to follow in faith and trust. That's what trust is. That's what faith is, actually. It's not something we just kind of subscribe to in our minds and go, oh, we're good now, you know, and say amen to in our hearts and go, we're good now. No, no, you actually have to embody it. Embodied response. You've got to live it. It's a practice. I think the other people that... Um, that God's you know, really laid on my heart is, is those who maybe have never actually made a decision to follow Jesus at all. Maybe, maybe there's someone here this morning who you look at this and you go, oh man, Clint, when you talk about a life opening up to you increasingly, experiencing more love and forgiveness, more joy and hope and freedom, that that, that would be true of your experience, that you could live free, unencumbered, by guilt and shame and you could you could live free from that I think Jesus would say yeah absolutely enter through the narrow gate it doesn't look like in our world many are choosing it but actually when you look around the world over human history millions have and continue to and so maybe the invitation for you this morning is to say yes to Jesus to recognize once and for all that Jesus died on the cross, not for his own need or his own sake, but for yours. To pay the price of your sins that earned you a penalty of destruction is the way that Jesus talks about it. And instead, step into the narrow gate and through the narrow way, which is by receiving his sacrifice on your behalf. To receive his forgiveness for your sin that you would be set free and you might live as a follower of Him. And that opportunity, that invitation is open to you this morning and that you could step into that and you could say yes to Jesus, forgive me of my sins and receive the Holy Spirit to come and empower you and lead you on the narrow way that leads and opens to life. Friends, I think it's the best decision you could ever make with your life. I'd love for you to make that choice this morning. I'd love the chance to be able to pray with you. And so I'd invite our ministry team too. If anyone you know, is welcome, willing to come and pray, let's have our um, folks come up. And if you just want to stand and pray. And so if, let's all stand together as we respond to God this morning. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And, and uh, if, if, if God is kind of speaking and you sense God doing something in your own heart and your own mind uh, this morning, then I invite you to come. And here's, here's how you can respond. Is just, you just come forward to the front here and just stand in the front with your, with your hands open like this. And having our hands open like this is just a way to embody a sense of openness to receive from God this morning. A way to say, yes, Lord, I recognize my need. And it's a way of, you know, so for some of you, maybe it's a way to receive forgiveness, receive salvation from Jesus for the first time this morning. Maybe for some of you, it'd be an opportunity if you're feeling like you're that person who, you know, needs to just fully surrender. It's a way of surrendering. And so maybe for you, you might turn your hands over as a sign of letting go and trusting God on the narrow way.
But that I just invite you to take that posture if that's you this morning. And so I'm going to pray. Uh, the team here will just kind of come through and bless the work of God as He's ministering to you and meeting with you. But let's pray together. We say, come Holy Spirit. You're welcome here. Holy Spirit, why don't you come? 